with demand expected to come back, the question remains, does this mean the economy is back on track? Companies now, after experimenting with offshore in places like India, Philippines, and Poland, want to bring those jobs back. We invest in the U.S. We're the biggest exporter in the country. In the cycle one right now, we're creating jobs. From Radio America, it's Neil Asbury's Made in America, the show that explores American industry large and small and promotes American-made products everywhere. Put Neil Asbury's Made in America to work for you. A very big welcome to you today. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Rothman. Rich, um, very big weekend, very big weekend, and a lot of things going on in our country, as you know. But uh, Hong Kong, this incredible city, incredible city. I lived there for quite a while, uh, and I grew up in, in, in North Jersey, just across the river from the other great city of the world, New York City, where you grew up. That's right. Right? So New York, Hong Kong. i got to tell you, Hong Kong, though, as far as a bastion of capitalism and, and economic freedom, and you know, it, it's, there's, an, there's an amazing thing in the air there. I mean, just crossing uh, uh, the harbor on Star Ferry and seeing the beautiful Admiralty and in, in, in Wan Chai and Central these on Hong Kong Island and looking back towards Kowloon uh, just absolutely the biggest a, a, Buddha in the world <laughs> yes I had to the go biggest, there. the biggest well, the biggest neon first thing sign I had to go world? see when I got there with Gloria years ago on our first trip she said well, we have to go see the Buddha tomorrow morning I said really first thing we're gonna, we're going to go see the Buddha tomorrow morning it's huge Great, great city, great city, great city, great yeah. people, yeah. Great and business. you know they just want to be left alone. They want to do their thing. They want to make business. And there's nobody better in in Asia than you know just being business people and entrepreneurial. You know, a lot of people uh, compare Hong Kong to Singapore, and you know I love Singapore. I live there as well, but. Singapore is no Hong Kong, you know. It oh isn't. yeah, it just isn't. I mean the, the whole psychology of the, the two people, places, you know, the, the, the skill set, and you know the way that they trade and the way that they know how to make money and the go go rah rah, you know, anything could happen sort of spirit that is in Hong Kong just isn't the same in Singapore. There's just something very special in Hong Kong. So to see a million people out this week, you know, on the streets, that was amazing. Um, and, you know, just yearning to be left alone. Just leave us alone. That's what you promised. You said you're going to leave us alone. You know, uh, one country, two systems, and, you know, you're going to let us alone. But, hey, that's not happening. They filled up the, 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 the governing council in Hong Kong with a lot of loyalist, loyalists from Beijing, and they're forcing all these sort of rules. And now they want to uh, uh, extradite people in Hong Kong. To the bad to, place. To, to Beijing if <laughs> yeah. they feel like, hey, look, um, you know, this guy's saying something that uh, we don't like, so we're just going to bring him back to Beijing and, you know, put him in jail, torture him, whatever they well, do. You know, it got a little violent. I mean, it, it, it got touch and go the other day. But the really fascinating thing about it all is that now Beijing, the, the folks, uh, big brother in Beijing, is blaming President Trump of for these people in Hong Kong to be out there yearning for democracy. Absolutely amazing. Hey, look, we're going to bring on right now Jacob Shapiro, uh, who's the director of analysis for geopolitical futures. He's joining us right now. We're going to talk about Hong Kong, we're going to talk about China, we're going to talk about a lot of things. Hey, Jacob, welcome to Made in America. Thanks for having me. And I have to say, it's, uh, it's fun for this country boy from Georgia to hear you guys talking about the cosmopolitanism of New York City and Hong Kong and all this other stuff. I hope I can, hope I can add some, some perspective. Well, hey, look, man, it's a big country and a big world. And, uh, you know, I, you know, 
it's it's a it's a great place in in Hong Kong. I got to tell you, I was living there. I, I just thought it was amazing, and you know, I I, I lived in uh, uh, Wan Chai and Happy Valley, and that's where the racetrack is. I jock around there. Uh, just love my time in Hong Kong, the energy and and all of that. And I got to tell you, you know, seeing a million people out, you know, just saying, hey, wait, you know, this is not what you promised us. But then going from that to the Chinese government blaming President Trump is amazing. So what does that mean? I mean, is, is China really ratcheting things up right now? I mean, are they kind of digging their heels in and you know, just going to come down very hard on Hong Kong uh, because it is capitalist and, and somehow they've, they, they've connected dots that don't exist back to these trade discussions uh, with the president? Well, I, I actually I don't think the trade discussions are necessarily linked to what's going on in Hong Kong. I mean, th this dynamic in Hong Kong has been going on for a while. I mean, if you live there and you follow there, you know about those Occupy protests that were there a couple of years ago. And I mean, I think you put your finger on it when you talked about the you know two systems, one country thing. Th that was never going to work and that was never going to be true. You mentioned Hong Kong as sort of in comparison to Singapore. But if you're sitting in Beijing and you're a decision maker in Beijing, the comparison is Taiwan. And for China, this was about asserting control over Hong Kong and making sure that Hong Kong is part of the mainland. And China looks towards Taiwan in a similar way. So the Hong Kong that you knew and loved and spent time in in the 80s and 90s, that, that Hong Kong isn't there anymore. And really, that China isn't there anymore, right? The, the coming of Xi to power has fundamentally upended everything that I think people knew about China, starting with that Deng Xiaoping era. Well, I mean, I, I do find it remarkable right now uh, that when you try, when you look at the, pe the people that are there right now, first of all, I got very confused because I thought it was the meeting of the Democratic Party when I saw the picture of all the people on the streets because it looked like all the people who were running for the president on the Democratic <laughs> side. So that, just having to say that, I got to get it out of the way. But, but on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, we've both been to China. I've been to China a bunch as well. Uh, Hong Kong, one of my favorite cities of the world, and it has always been an, a, a wonderful open city uh, up until recently. And, um, and 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 you're right. The the feeling and the history of Hong Kong um, is is ox it's oxymoronic to the way China is today. If you think about it, it was always a, an exciting city, a city with pirates, a city with business as a huge market for investment and trade, a tremendously huge port system that's dramatic and exciting and vibrant. And, and, and a major magnet for global trade. And in, 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 a, in a way, uh, <clears throat> when I look what's happening, if, when I, w I was there actually when it was making the changeover um, from the Brits to the Chinese, and, and, and I got very concerned when I was there, to be perfectly honest. Well, yeah, I mean, so, the, Jacob, the what, do they, what do they do next here? I mean, what, what is the, the next step? I mean, China's going to get its way, right? I mean, they're going to get what they want here. Yeah, no, I mean, the battle is lost for Hong Kong already. I mean, that's not going to happen. I, the, the changeover from the British to the Chinese happened at a time when the Chinese, it was in their best interest to be completely open and to be plugged into a capitalist system. But what's going on, what's going on now is that the internal economics, uh, the internal economics of China is that China has to turn inward. And it doesn't necessarily need to be that kind of connected. It doesn't want to be that connected. It wants to be more self-sufficient on the inside. And now that China is the one calling the shots there, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with that, that old quote from Weber where he talks about the state, the power of the state is to have a monopoly on violence in a particular territory, right? 
Um, China has the monopoly in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is part of China, and how China goes is how Hong Kong is going to go. I think this extradition law will be interesting to see how this goes, because China has been sort of creeping on these freedoms that we've been talking about for a long time. And this specific extradition law that you were talking about, which allows people to get sent to the mainland, that has really upset people, right? But there are so many other little steps that have happened that didn't upset people. And it's really, it's too far gone. I don't think you can turn that clock back now if you're Hong Kong. Well, it's sort of like what, what Alinsky said and others in the United States back in the 70s. He said, listen, we're going we're gonna to take a piece and a piece and a piece of the democracy in the United States. And at some point, they won't even realize they gave up their democracy and it will be too late to do anything about it. And it will turn into a socialist communist state. That was a Saul Alinsky idea. So, yeah, you're right. Um, uh, th- they've been encroaching for a while. But, you know, the bottom line is they have the power. You know, it's what it comes down to. They have the power. No, they, they do have the power. And I would just make the point, though, that the, the thing that this has to make the United States and anyone in this region think about, and I mentioned this already, is the future of Taiwan. Because make no mistake, China's coming for Taiwan. China views Taiwan the same way, views it as part of China. The United States and Japan and Australia and all these countries, they need to get real clear very fast about what they are willing to do in order to protect Taiwan. How far are they willing to go? Because you see China doing that same thing, isolating Taiwan diplomatically, trying to make it economically unfeasible for Taiwan to have any kind of relationships except with Beijing in that particular way. I don't think you can turn the the clock back on Hong Kong, but what's going on in Hong Kong right now should put every policymaker's eyes on, okay, what's going on in Taiwan? How can the U.S., is it in the U.S. interest to stop that? And what can the U.S. do to help Taiwan? You know, I visited uh, uh, Taipei and well, I visited the island of Taiwan many times and traveled all over that island. And another really great people, but uh, but a very proud people too. You know, they're they're very proud of their of their economic success. And uh, and, and quite honestly, you know, yes, a number of Chinese came over to Taiwan uh, with Chiang Kai Shek in 1949. But there are many people in Taiwan who have no affiliation or no affinity with China whatsoever. Doesn't matter. Right. And, you know, how much, you know, China really never ruled Taiwan. You know, Taiwan was always very, very independent. The people of Taiwan are what I'm saying is that 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 it's it's a mistake to think culturally that the people are of Taiwan are the same as Chinese or the same oh, as China. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's also you have to also understand that, you know, uh, for the culture of those in Beijing, it absolutely is part of China. So they view it and part of their cultural knowledge is, well, no, Taiwan, yes, maybe the Chinese didn't settle it until 16 or 1700s after the Portuguese discovered it. But ever since then, it's been part of a unified China. And the whole MO of the Chinese Communist Party is unified China, make China secure, make China independent. And as long as Taiwan isn't part of that mainland, the decision makers in Beijing, they don't really care what kind of culture they think they have in Taiwan. They are going to try to bring Taiwan into the fold. I agree. Very interesting. Hey, I agree. uh, Very fascinating. Hey, Jerry, do you have a moment? I want to talk about trade. Can you stick around for a second? Yeah, I'd love to talk about trade. Okay, uh, we're going to be right back. Uh, A great discussion. Jacob Shapiro, you don't want to miss this. We're going to follow up with with trade and, and, and what is China telegraphing right now about what kind of deal they want for trade or do they even want a deal at all? Don't want to miss it. Stay with us. We're going to be right back. Made in America. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Rothman, and we're talking to 
Jacob Shapiro, who's the director of analysis at Geopolitical Futures. So, Jacob, let's let's talk about trade for a second, uh, a very, very important topic. You know, I mean, it looked like a deal was going to happen and then it kind of all blew up. And I really do believe, President Trump, I believe that that they had a deal and the Chinese backtracked and they thought they could retrade. And they got back, you know, thinking that the president was was going to do a deal and, you know, whatever, uh, that they would come back and change documentation and, and backtrack on some some very fundamental issues that they'd get away with it. And uh, he said, no, he said, no, 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 no. And we're going to hit you with those 15% additional tariffs and uh, watch out because another $300 billion of tariffs are coming. So the Chinese now kind of went back. Everybody's reevaluating in the rhetoric, at least coming out of Beijing right now. And we just talked a little bit about what's happening in Hong Kong and blaming the president, blaming the president in, in the United States for the people of Hong Kong coming out a million people this past weekend and really, you know, letting their their thoughts be known about um, some of the, the the laws that Hong Kong wants. I mean, China wants to force on Hong Kong. Very, 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 very sad situation in Hong Kong right now. China's playing hardball. But, you know, what, 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 what does the tea leaves tell you? I mean, you know, is this posturing and behind the scenes they, they really want to get something done? Or have they really, really taken a hard turn to the left and are willing to go it alone? Hey, look, there, there's a technical term for what China is feeling in the short term, and that's screwed. Um, there's nothing they can do if the United States is going to go this route with tariffs. It's something like 20 percent of the official um, exports of Chinese exports abroad. That's not even counting all the unofficial data and stuff like that. Go to the United States. So it's their biggest export partner. It cuts right to the bone of what has made the Chinese economy grow so successfully since 1979. I think the calculation that Xi Jinping was making, I think the one that he is making, is he couldn't be seen domestically at home to make a deal too fast. Right. He has to appear tough. He has to use what Trump and the United States is doing to galvanize his people, to rally around the flag, to tell them, look, things are going to be really difficult for a couple of years. And it's not my fault. And it's not the Communist Party's fault. And it's not Marx's fault. And it's not Mao's fault. It's all this Donald Trump guy's fault. And we're going to do the best we can to protect China. And then five, 10 years down the road, maybe we'll be able to to fix the situation. So I do, I think it's exactly right. I think it's posturing. It's a way for Xi to build up his domestic base at home. But if you look just on paper at what both sides need in the short term, China really needs a deal in the short term. It can take a little bit of pain, but it would be much better for China if it had a deal in the short term. And in the short term, it would be good for Trump to have a deal and to show that he was able to get Xi to come to the table and bend Xi to his will. So if you look at, a, I think Trump said today or earlier or yesterday that he still expects there to be a deal. I also still expect there to be a deal in the short term. I think the more interesting question is long term, what has this done to the foreign policy establishments in both countries? Because I think China and the U.S. now both understand this is a competitor. We can have a short term deal if we want. But in the long term, this is going to be a competition. We need to be prepared for that. Well, I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, this is really uh, positioning. You know, president of China needs to look like he's strong. He needs to have explanations for the folks over there, particularly for the the economy that they're going through right now. Uh, Trump needs to have a, a win over here as well. He needs to look strong. Listen, a win for Trump right now would be dramatic when it comes to a deal with China. 
if, if we actually cut a really good deal with China, which I don't think we're going to do right now. But you're right. He did say today, it was again this morning, that he expects a deal with China, but he doesn't expect it soon. He did say that because I was listening to it live. He doesn't expect it soon. Not right now, but he thinks he can do it. You know, you, you got to read his book, The Art of the Deal, to understand, you know, the psychology of where he's coming from. And he will walk out of a deal seconds before he's supposed to sign if he feels that it's the proper thing to do for himself. And, and he would do that, and he does that. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think we're in a face-to-face. And now we're, we're coming up against the 2020 election, so the Chinese are figuring that in. They're factoring that into their decision-making. God knows if Feinstein is still talking to them or Kerry or Pelosi or anybody else. You know, they're certainly doing that over with the Iranians. But So let's see. I, it's very exciting. I, yeah, I think short-term there could be something. Long-term, not yet. Mm-hmm. Look, and I, I think it's ironic that I mean, the Trump administration in some ways is giving Xi Jinping what he wants. If you look back to what happened to the Chinese economy after 2008, it was in shambles. The whole, the whole system was broken. And China knows that it has to completely reorient its economy. It has to get away from exports and it has to get to consumption. It needs Chinese people to buy Chinese goods and to consume that way rather than being dependent on everyone else. I think one of the unintended consequences of these tariffs is that the United States has given Xi this kind of lifeline, right? Because if, if this had all happened and if the Chinese economy had unraveled and there was no aggressive United States or no easy scapegoat to make sure they would have tried to make a scapegoat anyway, but it wouldn't have been so convincing. The way that the U.S. is being so heavy handed with this and the way they are going after China in this particular way, it actually takes some of the pressure off Xi. Right. It's almost like he can say, well, look, like we're trying as hard as we can. But, you know, the problems that you're all experiencing, don't blame the Communist Party. You've got to blame these Americans. And that also sets up a, a pretty dangerous dynamic, I think, in the long term between the United States and the, and the Chinese, no matter who's whether it's Xi or Trump or whoever is in office on both sides. Yeah, Jacob, it's, it's fascinating to watch. You know, I have you know a pretty big uh, experience working in China and, and uh, as of today uh, as well. And, you know, I can tell you, I mean, as you know very well yourself, is that the China government now is really whipping up the Chinese people against the foreign devils right i mean <laughs> you know this this goes back in history uh to the 19th century but but the foreign devils and and uh, that's certainly donald trump and and his people and and i think by uh you know extension the united states right now and that's that's pretty dangerous i mean that's that's very dangerous i don't you know our our government has never you know turned us against the chinese people where our government talks about chinese policy but not the government policy, but not its people. And I don't know yeah. if China is making that distinction. Well, it's actually funny if you look at you know all the polling. Generally speaking, Americans like Chinese people and Chinese people like Americans. If you look at how Americans feel about, say, the Japanese and how the Japanese feel about the Americans on sort of a personal level, right? there's actually a lot more suspicion between the U.S. and Japan, but it's a very strong alliance. Um, I, I wanted to also pick up on what you said about you know the, the foreign devils, and it, it's true that China is whipping that up. But one of the reasons it's whipping it up is because it has the Communist Party has no ideological legitimacy anymore. Um, China is really just communist in name. It's been a state capitalist society basically since '79. When she got into office, what was he talking about? He was talking about Reaganomics and supply side reforms, right? Like there is no communist legitimacy there. What there also isn't anymore is opportunity. So from 79 until about 2008, 
the normal Chinese Joe Schmo was able to think, well, okay, like the system is going good for me. Everybody around me is getting enriched. It's eventually going to happen for me too. That's not happening anymore either. So she is really playing into the only card he really has left, and that is Chinese nationalism. That's really the only thing that China has left, but it's, it's something that the Chinese people really do feel. It's a very real dynamic. The Chinese remember what it was like to be dominated by foreign powers, whether it was the British during the Opium Wars, or the Russians stealing Vladivostok from them, or the Japanese raping and pillaging their way through the mainland. They remember all those things, and they don't want to be treated that way. So it, it does whip up this thing into a frenzy, and it, it reflects, I think, a deep Chinese fear. And I think that if you continue to have this kind of contentious relationship, maybe that goodwill between the peoples won't be there. Yeah, very good point. Hey, hey, Jacob, very, very good insight. Jacob Shapiro, Director of Analysis at Geopolitical Futures. Jacob, we hope you're going to come back again and see us real soon. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you so much for having me. Very good. Hey, uh, coming up, we have Dr. Sean McAlmont. He is the president for Careers Readiness Education. Uh, and they say there's 55 million jobs that's going to be created and needed in this country through 2020. And only 36, but 36 million of them will not require a bachelor's degree. Vast majority of jobs anybody can apply for. You just need to get some technical training. Get out there and start building your American dream. You don't want to miss it. Made in America. higher at the open, stocks continued to perform well over the course of the day Tuesday. And I think that bodes well here over the next couple of years for having bigger demands coming to this country. Now, more of Neil Asbury's Made in America. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Rothman. So, Rich, here's a statistic for you. Of the 55 million U.S. job openings expected through 2020, which is just right around the corner, 36 million will not, will not, I want to emphasize that, require a bachelor's degree. I think that's exciting stuff. What that tells me is that technical training, vocational training, things that we talk about here, uh, uh, you know, apprenticeships, uh, learning a trade. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hey, look, there's going to be a lot of money made there and a lot of great careers. And this country is in a major deficit for technical skills. And I think that's great stuff. It takes a lot shorter in time, and it costs a lot less to pursue vocational type of education. And and believe me, with a lot of the technology and the machines, I know as a U.S. manufacturer, the machines I use to process metals and to form metals and to to mold plastics and so forth, to do various plating, it, it takes very skilled people to run and maintain those machines. And, and they do very, very well. They do very, very well. But we have a deficit of that type of skill in this country. Oh, there's no question about that. And and that even may be one of the reasons why the last few job numbers are, are, are lower than we anticipated them to be. Because some of the jobs that are out there right now, Neil, are not the traditional jobs, and they're looking for very, very skilled individuals. And we've talked about this for quite a few years, particularly the apprenticeship program concept. That you know, the the concept that college is for everyone and college is manifest for everyone. Uh, when when I went to college, it, if you, oh my God, if you didn't go to college, you're never going to get a good job. You know, your parents push and you had to go do it, and you can't get one degree. You got to get a two degrees, and if you only get two degrees, you might need a third degree. So you know, you went on. 
and on. It's just not there anymore. It's not that way anymore. And and I think that's actually a very good thing. Yeah. Be honest. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's a different world. Hey, we're very pleased to have on with us right now, Dr. Sean McAlmont. He is the president for Careers Readiness Education. Dr. McAlmont, welcome to Made in America. Yes, thank you for having me. So it was a fascinating statistic. Um, 55 million jobs expected through 2020. I mean, that's a lot of jobs. If you take a look at our overall population, I mean, we're creating jobs in this country like at historic levels. But 36 million, or the, the significant majority of those jobs, will not require a bachelor's degree. So tell us, what type of job market is out there, and what are the opportunities? Yeah, you know, it's an amazing statistic, and I think that it shows that technology is really driving a new type of job, a new type of workforce. And, and by the way, I think education is lacking behind. And so... Another amazing amazing statistic that kind of rolls along with that is the fact that many of those jobs will go unfilled, as you were saying um, you know, earlier in, in your introduction. And I think that that's a, a really sad thing for the country. Uh, one of the things we look at, uh, at at K-12 is essentially how do you prepare students at younger ages for this, this new workforce and the, these, these types of jobs that will be out there. And, and it's an interesting dilemma. Because think about this. The, the gap that we're seeing says that all of these new jobs that are being created, many of the 55 million, are driven by um, technological advancement. So the way that uh, car engine works today is much different than it worked in the past, and, and that type of training is, is heavily uh, diagnostic-based. Uh, um, there's a computer or many, many computers running those engines. And so students have to really learn the, um, the, the dynamics of how an engine works, but also how computers are managing them. And quite frankly, that's not a bachelor's degree level um, skill set, but it pays extremely well. So with that said, you've got an education system that is in some ways very archaic. Um, you've got the teachers that have been teaching for 20 to 30 years, counselors in the same vein, and they're not aware of the technological advancement. So you have schools preparing students in a very old school, traditional way, but an economy pressing jobs in a new way. So it's causing that gap to widen. And that, that's an issue. Yeah, I, I actually I did teach and I taught college in uh, back in when, a couple of decades ago when I when I got started in, in college uh, right here in Florida. And and if if you think about what we're talking about, it's an attitudinal thing as well. To make yes. this transition, you have to have an attitude that's different than it has been. And that is going back to what I said. Not college is not for everyone. But you don't need college. You know, by saying college is not for everyone could also be attitudinal. But the point of the matter is, the where we are today. I mean, look at all the kids that are working with my son at Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, half of them don't have college degrees. And, and you know, the, the sort of culturally in our country, it's like if, if you don't have a college degree, you're stupid. But, but, but that's, let me but that's you, what's got to change. But, but that's got to change. That's because the whole point. And, and, the, and, the, and the truth is, is that running a lot of this technology and these machines and, and, and the way work is done today, it takes very smart people to do that. It does. It takes but, very smart people to do that. But I think you have to segregate. You can be smart, but you don't have to be, you know, have the books with you all the time and sit in a, in a classroom in a, in a non-real environment. Teaching you things that are totally irrelevant. Yeah. You know, that so. doesn't prepare you for the real world. It just, so, well, you know that anyway. You know so that. So, Dr. McCallman, how do we how do we change this culture? 
Well, you know, the, I, I think that. Um, so, so I, I've spent um, you know the last year or so working on the on the K twelve side of things, really trying to figure out how to, you know, bring that kind of career readiness earlier to like middle school students, high school students to get them ready, et cetera. Um, I spent the majority of my time though working in in technical higher education, and one of the things I found is that many of the people that that end up going uh, to technical college are going there at a point of desperation. They're almost going back to school because they need a skill uh, to improve themselves and improve their standard of living. But by the time they get there, their life circumstances have have taken them on a circuitous route. Uh, They're incurring debt, and and they're really at that, that point of desperation. So the way that uh, we're looking at it is, what if we in, introduced career pathways to students in middle school? So the same careers we, we've just been talking about, you know, the, the, the skilled trades, um, CNC uh, machining, uh, which is, is highly technical and, and actually very interesting, um, you know, nursing careers, uh, IT careers, etc. You introduce those pathways in middle and high school and let students learn about them. You bring industry in, you have them work on projects. So project-based learning uh, is, is a part of, you know, our philosophy on how to introduce those skills and bring industry into the picture. And so you take it out of the hands of those tra- traditionalists, if you will. You take it out of the hands of the teacher and the counselor and you let students hear directly from industry exper- uh, experts. So a day in the life of uh, an accountant or, um, you know, what, what's the route you took as, as an architect to get where you are? Or what are these new Google jobs and why don't you need degrees? But get that information to the students in middle and high school. So by the time they graduate, they've, they've explored these careers. They've had a, a, a chance to take some courses in the pathway uh, as electives. And they can take a certification. So when they're done, they can either go to work and, and gain, you know, maybe a pre-apprenticeship, go to work at an entry level and gain experience, and then go to college or go to a technical college and work while you're in college, but to increase their, their options. And, and by the way, when they get into higher education, if that's the route they choose, they're not changing majors trying to explore while they're in college. That's, that's increasing debt at, an, at incredible rates. So we want that exploration to happen in, in middle school and high school, and I think it's a way to start shrinking that gap. Very, very fascinating. And, you know, something that this country's got to do, hey, Dr. McComet, we really appreciate being on. I know this topic is something that we need to continuously talk about and explore and uh, and find people like you who are willing to go out there and, and make it happen and, and give people visibility to this very, very important thing, the type of people, the type of jobs that this country will be creating. Great jobs, not necessarily jobs that require a bachelor's degree. Thanks for being on the show, Dr. McComet. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, we have Joel Griffith from the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about Democrat socialism. In systems like socialism, I want to remind you, deny basic human rights and always lead to misery, poverty, and oppression. Just remember that. You don't want to miss this segment. It's coming right up. Stick with us. Made in America. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host 
Dr. Rich Ruffin. So, Rich, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my family, very proud from Appalachia in West Virginia. And they were, and my grandmother and my uncles and my aunts, let me tell you, they were Democrats through and through. Absolutely Democrat. Anything that was Republican, you just couldn't be around a Republican that was like, that was, uh, you know, it was terrible. You know, how could you be a Republican? The state West Virginia was probably the bluest state in the country. And, you know, that's how I grew up. And, and, and the people, and they were hardworking. And, you know, they, they just wanted jobs. They went out. They worked hard, very, very hard workers. They didn't want anything for free. They, my, my, my family never took any welfare. I mean, any of that, you know, you had to get out. You had to work. But, you know, today they're taking that, trout, that proud tradition of what is a Democrat of a generation ago. And now they're taking that and now they're 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 hyphenating it with socialism. You know, a Democrat socialist. Right. I mean, that's they they were not the same thing. I mean, they were very different. So since when are we putting the Democratic Party's tradition? I mean, the tradition of what I remember growing up together with socialism. I mean, it's just. To me, it's blasphemous. But, I mean, it's catching fire within the Democrat Party. It has caught fire it within has caught the Democratic fire. Party. And you're right. The Democratic Party isn't the party of my father. It's a very, very different thing. He was and, a staunch Democrat. Yeah. And but I, he wouldn't support anything he sees today. Not, not, a, not an idea would he uh, support I mean, Anything, you know, I remember my grandmother saying, I mean, you, anybody who's got a D next to his name, you vote for them. <laughs> you know, that's it. You don't even that, have to know anything about That's about right. Right? Yeah, that's about right. That's the way it was. But it still is in many places. Different world. Yeah. Different time. Hey, we're very pleased to have on Joel Griffith from the Heritage Foundation, where he is a research fellow. Hey, Joel, welcome to Made in America. Hello. Thank you for having me this afternoon. So I think it's you know, when I see the word Democrat, you know, kind of put up with socialist, Democrat socialists. It's just to me, I mean, there's something is very wrong about that. But there's so many, you know, people in the Democrat Party that's embracing that identity and they're running towards that identity. But then there's others, you know, I guess the the Joe Biden sort of group, or at least he's trying to hold on to that centrist Democrat. I guess they're still out there because Joe seems to be doing pretty well in the polls. But there seems to be this major fight, a civil war almost going on within the Democrat Party. Are they socialists? Are they going to become the Socialist Party of America and just drop the word Democrat? What's going on here? Well, another way to look at this is that those who use the term Democratic Socialist are saying, look, we, we want socialism, but we're going to do this in a democratic manner. We're not going the route of Venezuela is what they're saying. We're not going the route of the Soviet Union. We're going to, we're going to do this in a democratic way. The people are going to be uh, in charge. Uh, and uh, what they forget is, regardless. Well, well isn't that what the wasn't what they said in the Soviet Union that the people were going to be in charge? I know some guys from the 1917 said the same thing. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't turn out too well. Was yeah. that you're talking about Trotsky and his, exactly. and his and his gang? My guy. I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah, Trotsky, nice well, guy. Well, look, regardless of the manner in which this socialism is implemented, we know something about it. We know that it results in slower growth fewer opportunities, and higher unemployment. Um, I don't think anyone would, uh, would say that Western Europe or countries such as uh, Spain or Italy um, or anything like the tyrannical regime in Venezuela. But the fact is they're living underneath democratic socialism. And um, even though they're not uh, suffering the same way that they're suffering in Venezuela, 
they certainly are not enjoying the standard of living that we enjoy here in the United States. Um, and what we need to demand of those that are pushing forward this democratic socialist um, ideal is they need to be honest with the American people and say, look, if, if we're going to have a European-style welfare state, then we're going to have to have European-style taxation. And that means that it's not just going to be the wealthy bearing the burden here. It's going to be the middle class bearing the burden. And uh, something that I, I find really fascinating is if you look at the Medicare for All, for instance, the, uh, the price tag on that is approximately $32 trillion over 10 years, $3 trillion a year. Um, if you look at the big proposals for hiking taxes on, on the so-called wealthy, the 70% top income tax, the 2% wealth tax, the financial transactions tax, you know, they only raises $300 billion a year. Um, that's one-tenth of the, the cost of just the health care component of this agenda. And where, where does the rest of that money come from? Well, the rest of that money is going to ultimately have to be borne by the middle class, which is what you see in Europe, where, um, <laughs> where the average person, if you're making in the lower income range, say $35,000, $40,000 in U.S. dollars, in the U.S., you're going to have about a 32% marginal tax rate between state, local, federal taxation. In Europe, it's, it's closer to 50% across most of Europe. And, and that's, the, that's the price that's going to be, have to be borne by the middle class. And uh, the, the democratic socialists need to be honest about that. Yeah, fascinating. I, it's, it's, it, we just don't know the cost. I don't think anybody has added up the numbers like you just did. Amazing. Only 10% can come from the wealth tax. That's right. That's a big gap. Yeah. Well, hey, Joel, thanks for being on the show. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Joel Griffith from the Heritage Foundation. We really appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, Dr. Rothman and I are going to have some final thoughts for the day. Made in America. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host, Dr. Rich Rothman. Rich, Democrat socialist. Just amazing. Yeah. I mean, Democrat socialist. Okay, East Germany, Democrat socialist. Run by the National Socialists, the Democrat Socialist Party, the Communists. That's right. Just cut to the chase. You don't have to use two words. Use one word. Communist versus Democrat Socialist. You can do that. It works that way. But what I find amazing, Neil, and, and this is interesting, he's right. Everywhere you go and you have socialism, you know, you do have a reduction in R&D, research and development. You do have a reduction in innovation because they can't afford it. It's just not going to happen. Well, and, you, no, and you're not there's motivated. No there's no incentive. Yeah, you're not motivated to think about it. There's no, there's, no, there's no motivation to, you know, what does entrepreneurs do? They sit around a kitchen table. They get their family together. They decide. They're hungry. You know, they want to pursue hungry. their They're hungry. passion. They're hungry. They, they want to make something. That's right. They're all excited. And they got to take risk and risk and sometimes risk that they can't even fathom. But they still, they're still drawn to do it because of what? Because of economic freedom. Freedom. That's why they do it, because of economic freedom, which is 
the antithesis of socialism, which means there's no reason whatsoever for you to take any of those risks. There are no rewards. So why would you take a risk? You know, the, the whole innovation, I mean, all of our lives, the prosperity we have in this country, the power and the strength that we have in this country, not only, you know, within our own hemisphere, but around the world. I mean, what we've been able to accomplish, everything this country has been able to do, it's because of economic freedom. It's because of the freedom, not because of socialism. It's the socialist countries that have that are that are that have been shackled to the Stone Ages. Well, capitalism liberates. Capital capitalism gives the concept of freedom because it's a freedom of thought, freedom of development, and you I build. Think, I think what the, you know, but it's kind of like you asset. Know, well, it's kind of like the the thing with NAFTA, right? Everything was beating up NAFTA. I mean, nobody really understood NAFTA, free trade. I mean, of course, trade should be free. You know, anything that's free, freedom, freedom is a good thing in all forms. Just to be free. All good things happen, but but NAFTA, you know, it, it it got it just got a bad name, right? And just everybody was beating up on it. They didn't know why, but well, they just it was a bad thing. Oh, starting with NAFTA, Ross NAFTA, Perot, NAFTA, right? Ross Perot said, oh, oh, "So now essentially, great sucking sound of jobs going to Mexico." Well, that's right. So essentially, now you take NAFTA, you 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 do some improvements, really not re- fundamental improvements. I mean, NAFTA is still very much intact, but now we just call it the USMCA, right? The USMCA or NAFTA 2.0. Or but no, you can't say NAFTA. So the same thing is with kind of with capitalism, capitalist, capitalist, capitalist. I mean, people are thinking about the sweatshops and the in 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 the meat shops in the packing area in 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 Chicago, right? Or the garment district in New York. I mean, they're thinking about capitalism as being something that is that is you know exerting itself on on these poor people who cannot speak up for themselves and they're being taken advantage of let's just forget capitalism let's call it what it really is it's economic freedom economic freedom that's what it is let's just call it economic freedom and 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 i think you know we'll get this whole connotation of capitalism and call it economic freedom and we'll get everybody on board with that who does not want to have freedom of their own finances and to be able to control your own destiny by controlling your your money and your resources and being able to put it to work where you want to put it to work? Not the unproductive part of society taking your money away from you, the government, but yet leaving it with the most productive part of society, the entrepreneur, and letting they do the work of this country, the heavy lifting of this country. I just think that we got a rebranding. we got a branding problem. And I think that's what the socialists are really picking up on is because of the, the sort of bad sort of vibe that capitalism sort of. And, and they've been drilling that bad sort of vibe. And that's where the socialism is kind of picking up and saying, well, it's all for the people and we're all going to come together and we're going to love each other. And, you know, nobody's going to take advantage of anything and so on and so forth. And, and Rich, we had this conversation here many times. I mean, the millennials are buying in on that. They're buying they, in on it. Neil, buying in on it. They're not educated about it. They're not teaching. That's it why in we got to. We got to. Who's gotta, controlling the that's, schools? That's because we got to go back and talk about economic freedom. You know, do you want to be free, or do you want to be well, part of this, 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 this mass? this mass sort of glob that they're trying to create, and and just to take off. To take away all of your individuality and, and your spirit and, and your ability to get out there and work hard and, and to put everything out 
that you have, you know, to, to be successful for yourself and your family, for your community, for your country. No. That's what the young people would want to do if we framed it in that sort of a way. But we're not talking like that. And the socialism thing has got a lot of legs to it. I got to tell you, it's scary stuff, Rich. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the reality of the situation is that I listened to, and I, listened, I just had this argument with my partner over lunch the other day. And he said, so what's wrong with, you know, I said, give me a socialist country that works. He goes, oh, Finland. I went, really? Finland has a population smaller than Manhattan. We're a pop, it's 9 million. We're a population of 330 million. What is the tax rate? He didn't know. What is the tax rate in Sweden? It's huge. It's, 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 it's approaching 80%. It's really high. And they give all these programs to 9 million people. A lot, lot different. And, and, but the innovation, the R&D, that's, it's, it's not happening there. Yeah. It happens here. Hey, Rich, unfortunately, we're out of time. Very passionate topic, something that we have to continue to address. Very, very important. But we are out of time. But we're going to be back again next week for another adventure of Made in America, where we never stop fighting for your jobs. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.